I'm Rob Penzer. I'm the Associate Director of the Helix Center. Before I introduce uh, today's roundtable participants, I have a few announcements. Upcoming programs on Saturday, April 26th, join us for Women and Science with neuroscientist Christina Alberini, astrophysicist Priyamvad Natarajan, neuroscientist Liz Phelps, theoretical computer scientist and cryptographer Tal Rabin, and playwright Anna Ziegler, author of Photograph 51 about British scientist Rosalind Franklin. Then on Saturday, May 17th, we have a roundtable on women and the work world with economist Graciela Chichilniski, Manhattan District, uh, uh, excuse me, Manhattan Assistant District Attorney Mary Delosier, business school professors Nancy D. Tommaso and Ernesto Rubin, and scientist and women's issues advocate Patricia Taylor. We have a fundraiser on June 1st that we want you all to be aware of and hope that you will consider coming. Uh, it's, it will be at Ginny's Supper Club at the Red Rooster, and there will be uh, entertainment and uh, a uh, wine connoisseur who will guide um, attendees uh, through a flight of interesting wines. Then we have a poetry event coming up in June, and go to our website, www.helixcenter.org, for more information. Now, today's program, and I want to thank you all for coming out on such a beautiful day. Uh, I think it's a testament to what will be a fascinating program that you're all here on synchronicity, on the spectrum of mind and matter. Harold Altmanswasher is a physicist working at the Collegium Helveticum as an associate fellow and also at the Institute for Frontier Areas of Psychology and Mental Health in Freiburg. He has been teaching at Heidelberg University, LM Munich, TU Munich, UT Austin, and uh, Freiburg University. He is a private docent for theoretical physics at the University of Potsdam and a faculty member of the Parmenides Foundation in Munich and the Zurich C.G. Jung Institute. He is president of the Society for Mind Matter Research and editor-in-chief of the interdisciplinary international journal Mind and Matter. His publications include nine books, 170 papers, and various special journal issues, and he has organized 40 international workshops and conferences. His fields of research are the theory of nonlinear dynamical systems and complex systems, conceptual and theoretical aspects of algebraic quantum theory, and mind-matter relations from interdisciplinary perspectives. His most recent book is The Pauli Young Conjecture and Its Impact Today. Joseph Cambry is a Jungian analyst and past president of the International Association of Analytical Psychology. He has been a faculty member at Harvard Medical School, Center for Psychoanalytic Studies at Mass General. and adjunct faculty at Pacifica Graduate Institute. He's the former US editor of the Journal of Analytical Psychology. His publications include Synchronicity, Nature and Psyche in an Interconnected Universe, The Influence of German Romantic Science on Jung and Pauli in the Pauli-Jung Conjecture and its Impact Today, Jung, Science, German Romanticism, a Contemporary Perspective in Jung in the Academy and Beyond, the Fordham Lectures 100 Years Later, and other publications as well. Edgar Chueri is Professor of Applied Physics at the Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering Department of Princeton University and Associated Faculty in the Department of Astrophysical Sciences Program in Plasma Physics. He's also Director of Princeton University's Engineering Physics Program and Chief Scientist at the University's Electrical Propulsion and Plasma Dynamics Lab for Advanced Spacecraft Propulsion. 
He is the president of the Electric Rocket Propulsion Society and also director of Princeton's 3D Audio and Applied Acoustics Lab. A profile of Professor Chiari by Adam Gopnik appeared in the January 28th New Yorker of last year. Farzad Mahushan is on the faculty of liberal studies at New York University and an affiliated scholar with the Consortium for Science Policy and Outcomes at Arizona State University. His interdisciplinary research focuses on the interactions of myth, metaphor, and science, most recently in the context of research laboratory ethnographies. Publications include the forthcoming Lab as Dynamic System, Refining Midstream Modulation, that will appear in Neuroethics, I'm sorry, Nanoethics, Jung and Held and Osbeck are the editors. Rational Tuition, which is forthcoming from Cambridge University Press. Jung and Laboratory Ethnographies, Lab is Focus of Transformative Research in Jung in the Academy and Beyond, the Fordham Lectures 100 years later, and other publications. Beverly Zabriskie, who is our moderator and organized this roundtable, is a Jungian analyst, a founding faculty member and past president of New York's Jungian Psychoanalytic Association. Associate Editor of the Journal of Analytical Psychology, Board Member of the Philemon Foundation, which is producing the unpublished works of Jung. Her 60 publications include Time and Tao and Synchronicity in the Pauli Jung Conjecture and its Impact Today, Psychic Energy and Chronicity, which is in press in the Journal of Analytical Psychology, A Meeting of Rare Minds, the Preface to Adam and Archetype, the Pauli Jung Correspondence, Synchronicity and the I Ching, Jung, Pauli, and the Chinese Woman. Her 2007 Fay Lectures at Texas A&M addressed transformation through emotion from myth to neuroscience. Thank you. So thank you so much, Rob. And I especially want to thank um, Ed Nasarian and Rob Penser and Anne-Marie Levine, who were open to this proposal. And to me, it proves that Helix is really one of the major centers for intellectual and all other kinds of discourse in New York. And I'm just thrilled to be here. I think we are here because we all believe that conversation among the sciences and among the, all the disciplines is real, in that interaction is where the most fruit is going to be born. And you've been just wonderful in keeping this alive and making this alive. Um, because this is not a space where there has been too much talk of Jung, I've spent a lot of time in this space, many different programs. I'm going to take just a few minutes to fill in what you might not know in terms of the background through which we even are having this conversation about synchronicity. Jung counted among his primary influences William James first, then Freud, and at the same time as he and Freud were separating, Einstein was a major force in his life. They were on the faculty together at the Polytechnic in Zurich. And in the summer before Jung came to New York to give the Fordham lectures where he differentiated his idea of what psychic energy was from the traditional one, he wrote Freud a series of letters in which he described having dinners at his home with Bloiler and others, and a young physicist who talked about the theory of light. And then he repeated to Freud what this young Einstein was saying about energy. Then when he came to New York and he gave his definition of energy, you could 
clearly see Einstein's effect on Jung. Jung was 20 years younger than Freud, and so he was exposed to a different generation of science. Many years later, in 1930, he met Wolfgang Pauli, who, had been a, who was a quantum physicist in the Niels Bohr School, and who had been the man um, who established the exclusion principle. Excuse me, I'm very dry here. Which was the basis for the periodic um, table in chemistry. And he and Pauli then worked together over 20, 30 years, and they corresponded. And although my science education stopped with dissecting frogs in my freshman year in college, and I'm surrounded by these eminent scientists here, I was asked to write the preface to this correspondence of um, Jung and Pauli, which took me two and a half years to read enough about physics so that I could do that. I've had friends vet it since, though. Um, and I found their correspondence just thrilling because they were each attempting to come from their own disciplines and really lovingly, heartfully communicate with each other. Polly took such effort. He was 30 years younger than, even more, yeah. Younger than um, Jung, and Jung took, took so much time writing back to him about his dreams and a true exchange of information. And it was Pauli who convinced Jung to write about synchronicity, and then Pauli also wrote about it. So um, then when I met Harold, and as you will hear, he knows everything there is to know about the subject. I met Harold a few years ago at a conference he gave just of physicists and a philosopher and a few analysts. And Joe Cambray and I have worked for years on the topic of synchronicity. And then I met at a dinner party, I met Edgar, and the first thing he mentioned in our conversation, which doesn't happen so often, is he mentioned Pauli as one of his um, heroes. And then Farzad I met at a conference we had at Fordham on um, Jung's 100-year-long-ago lectures. And I just finished editing a chapter that Farzad has done about going into the laboratory. He did it with his wife, T. Marie. Um, and the effect of the observer on the experimenter who is being observed and therefore on the experiment. So it's been a great pleasure for me to know these men. I'm so glad to share their company with you. They, most of them, just met each other last night. And I can tell from what happened around the dinner table, this is going to be an exciting day. And I want to turn first the platform over to Harold, who's come here from Zurich. Thank you, Beverly. Okay. Thank you all for coming here and for um, making this a success, I guess. Um, let me let me start with some because you were Beverly. You were talking about uh, the, the road which which it took Jung to get to this. Uh, for Pauli, it was a little bit different, uh, of course. And you know, Pauli was had a chair for theoretical physics at the ETH, the Polytechnic at Zurich. 
1928. And um, that was the time also, among other, th uh, other things, in which uh, the new theory of quantum mechanics was proposed and worked out. And this was, so to speak, the, the pioneering phase of the new quantum physics, the physics of atoms and, and you know, all of this, these this, uh, small particles and so on. And in, in this time, actually, it's interesting to note that many of these physicists who, was, who were contributing, uh, Bohr, Heisenberg, Dirac, and others, they were all very much interested also in the philosophical foundations. But almost none of them was interested in, in making contact with psychology. There's only one exception. I mean, Pauli is one exception. Second exception is Pascal Jordan, Jordan, Jordan. Yeah, and Jordan went the Freudian way, in a sense, and Pauli went the Jungian way. So now, now we have this Wolfgang Pauli um, uh, writing up his dreams. He was, for a short time, he was even in, anal in analysis with Jung. And um, there's this rich dream material by Pauli, which is some, some of the dreams have been used by Jung in psychology and alchemy. But there is a huge body of dreams which have not even been seen by anybody except, except very few people. And so this collection of dreams, about 2,000 pages in two volumes, is just sitting on the table of the main editor at Springer Verlag in Heidelberg waiting to be published. So it, the, the, the manuscript is completely ready and it should be out this year, maybe, maybe next year, we don't know. We don't know for sure, but this will be, will be out. So Pauli then had to go into exile because he was of Austrian origin. Then Austria was annexed by, the, by Nazi Germany. Pauli was living in Zurich, but he didn't have a Swiss passport. So whenever he would leave um, Switzerland, then he would be, there was the risk that he would, would be captured by the, by the Germans. So he went into exile in, uh, to Princeton, actually, and had an invitation from Einstein there. And that was in 1939, he went to Princeton. 45, he got the Nobel Prize. Couldn't pick it up because he didn't have a passport. Then, then, then the US government reacted very quickly. They gave him a passport in, in a few months. So he could at least go one year later and, and get his Nobel Prize from Stockholm. And in the same year, 1946, he returned to Switzerland. And now this is the period now from 1946 until Pauli's death in 1958, in which the scientific and philosophical correspondence and collaboration with, with C.G. Jung really reached its climax. And that's also the time when the synchronicity principle was actually formulated by the two together. Jung published it, but uh, if you look into the correspondence, you will see that there was a huge amount of discussion and refi refinement of the paper and going forth and back. And then Pauli said, no, you can't do it. You, can't, you can say this simply. You know? And then, then Jung would, would refine and would revise. It was a period of almost one and a half years uh, over which this, this paper was developed. So you, you probably all know what synchronicity is about. It's a synchronistic experience very briefly, and maybe superficially, is a kind of, is an experience of a meaningful coincidence between the mental state of an experiencing subject, can be a patient, can be any human being, between the mental state of an experiencing human subject and a physical state of matter 
kind of apparatus, it can be a kind of it can be a piece of rock, it can be everything out there in the material world. So what we are talking about here is an instantiation of the mind-body problem ultimately. And that's why this why this issue of synchronicity moves so many people because it touches on an issue which is um, as old as human human cultures are. Already the Greeks talked about this, and of course in, in, in other parts of the world the mind-body problem has been treated as well, though in different terms. But that's that's why why this this issue of synchronicity I think is so important because it's a it's a very interesting nucleus for talking about the mind matter the mind body problem in general and I think there are three at least three and that's my then I then I come to an end here at least three um, roots which are I think important to study and develop to do research and development on the mind body problem uh, um, exemplified by by the principle of synchronicity. The first one is we need to understand better in, in, terms, of, in terms of scientific research, really, what's, what's going on in synchronistic events. You know, we're talking about a relationship between actually some two, two very different realms of reality, the, 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 the mental and the material. And Harold, my understanding is a causal is a major factor. That's a, that's an important point, which yeah. we might come into come to when we when we go into details. Okay. Just give me these these okay. are, these other two broad things, which I think are important. Uh, you know, interdisciplinarity, of course, is a is a key issue, and you see when, when you see that already when I said uh, Pauli as a physicist and and Jung as a psychologist. Uh, try to go into that together. This is this is the highest tension of interdisciplinarity that you can actually have in research. Almost nothing is, is done in, in this in this area. Then we have the second point is uh, synchronicity is also a kind of I think it comes down to a worldview issue. Um, we want to if we want to understand synchronicity, then this this um, touches on the worldview that people really have. And for instance, when you go to a standard neuroscientist, who the standard lab neuroscientists would, would say, I mean, what the mind-body problem, and actually everything is in the body, namely in the brain, and, the, and we, we will understand the mental, the mind, when we understand the brain. And for me, this is too cheap, um, for many other people too. Uh, but this is something, of course, this has worldview quality. And the third point, which is also important, maybe even more important than the other two is, what are the practical implications of understanding synchronicity? And this might be another issue which we can discuss as, as this session develops. Okay, thank you. Um, one, just one point that I'm sure Joe will um, pick up is that in his essay on synchronicity, Jung makes it quite clear that he's looking at the kind of phenomena that come together for which there's no perceivable cause. And one of the reasons he's doing this is to try to get us away from magical thinking. That very often, if one cannot see a cause or source, that's the reason for something to happen, we leap into magical thinking. So he's asking us to open our minds and not look for strict 
efficient cause of one thing therefore making another happen. So that if I fall off my horse, for instance, it isn't necessarily because God looked round, down and saw me. There may be some other reason I was meant to fall off the horse. Like there might gravitation. be some beautiful plant on the ground. Not just gravitation. <laughs> just gravitation. No, but if something else happens that is connected but not causal. So I just want to stick that in. Do you want to say anything more about that piece or another? Uh, what I would just add to the historical discourse, I think it's important to see how the idea emerged in Jung's thought. And when I first wrote a book on this, it was prior to when the Red Book had come out. And since then, I would rewrite the book considerably because after studying the Red Book, you can see the emergence of this notion in its early forms. Basically what happens, as many of you probably know, in 1913, um, as Freud and Jung have a real falling out, uh, Jung has a terrible set of personal experiences. It's really catastrophic. Multiple things are going on in his life, but he has a set of visions, waking visions on a trip to see his mother-in-law. I don't think she was the immediate cause. <laughs> uh, <laughs> one never knows. Uh, in any way, oh more seriously, he sees Europe filling up with blood. And he's horrified because as a psychiatrist, he understands what these kinds of mental states are apt to indicate. However, instead of trying to seal it over and uh, move away from it, he decides to go on an interior exploration of this state of mind. And this leads him to the, the raw material that becomes the Red Book. Um, he emerges out of that in uh, April of 1914, just about 100 years ago today. We're almost smack on when he stops that work. Uh, and he resigns his presidency from the IPA. He resigns his position uh, in uh, the psychiatry department at the University of Zurich. And he really is a, sort of in a free fall, but he's, he has a series of dreams that he finds rather helpful and um, potentially transformative, although if you look at them, there are healing juices and grapes, but it's frozen and so forth. The real change for him comes, of course, in August of 1914 when the guns go off. And he has a sense of, oh, maybe this wasn't just personal madness. Maybe there was a prophetic dimension. But the truth of the matter is that the horns of that dilemma are not very appealing to him either. Uh, and in fact, he stays with this for ab about 15 years, struggling with how to find a resolution for that. For him, he said the resolution came in 1928 when he received from uh, Richard Wilhelm, the sinologist, and a close friend of his, a, a Chinese alchemical text called The Secret of the Golden Flower. Um, and why that was the ending point was he was in the middle of doing uh, a set of mandalas for the Red Book. He was working on these kind of elaborate paintings of his own personal expression. And he was doing one that he felt had a very Chinese feel to it, and it, it had a particularly yellow color to it. And so he was stunned. Just as he had completed that, he received this manuscript. And it linked directly to the, the missing piece. And within a, within a couple of months of that, he's giving a dream seminar, private dream seminar. And there turns out there's a whole cluster of phenomena that begin to be activated around a patient's dream. 
And the students in the class ask him, how does he understand that? And he said, well, you know, in the West, our prejudice is for causality. In the East, it's for pattern formation, basically. It's for this kind of uh, coming together or synchronicity. It's the very first time he uses the term. 1930, he uses it in a, once publicly at Wilhelm's uh, memorial service. And then he's fairly silent on it until the Pauli letters go on. Uh, but I think that 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 transitional moment there um, where he gets the secret of the golden flower, one way to conceive of that is that he has a realization, and this goes to your point, Beverly, that he's, that the prophecy madman uh, dilemma is a false dilemma. That the, there may be something about the quality of the universe we live in. It's, he's a proto-anthropic universe kind of guy. He's suggesting that mind and meaning are somehow inherent in the very fundamental quality of our universe. And so he's starting to make a move into cosmology or cosmogony, quite frankly. And when you look at the writing of the Synchronicity essay in the late 40s, I'm sure Pauli is feeding him some of this. He starts to talk about places where space and time collapse to near zero, about his new idea of a, a psychoid archetype that links matter and, and mind as being a world-constituting factor. So what we have in that is um, basically a cosmogonic hypothesis that's mixing the best of contemporary um, cosmology with a kind of new psychological approach. And once you put the idea against that background, it starts to look quite different. The one final comment, taking it forward for myself as a clinician, I got interested in this topic because in the late 80s and early 90s, I had a lot of trauma patients referred. And there were a number of them, that some rather strange elliptical communications, to say the least. Uh, anomalous phenomena started to occur. And so I went back and reread Jung's essays to see if it would give me any insight on those cases. Um, and I found there were problems with his argument. For example, he makes an energy argument, but it uses classical 19th century thermodynamics for closed systems near equilibrium. Well, what we're talking about with this phenomenon are open systems very far from equilibria. So, in fact, my good fortune at the time when I started thinking about this is the people at the Santa Fe Institute were studying complex adaptive systems. And they began to speak about exactly those kind of systems that might be occurring at the origins of life, at the origins of mind, and so forth. And so when you cast it, recast this hypothesis within that kind of metaphor, you get a different understanding that I think actually has a lot of clinical utility as well as some applications for physics. But I'll, I'll stop there. And Farzad, you came into this from a completely different angle. And how did you, why were you drawn to this? Um, well, my first response when <laughs> you said that was, it's pretty much how I do everything, uh, mm -hmm. some other angle coming in. Um, and I think, if I th think the first time I, I heard about this, I was studying chemistry. And um, I started to get interested in the history of chemistry because I noticed that there were uh, different phenomena could be explained by, by two different mathematical formalisms explaining the same phenomena. And then on the other hand, sometimes you had one mathematical formalism explaining two really widely different phenomena. And so this got me to think about alternatives to what I was being taught. I was taking physical chemistry, which, as anyone know who's taking chemistry, <laughs> when you start to look for alternatives, because it's hard to do. Uh, but um, 
I realized at that point there's many ways to go do this. After I looked at the history of chemistry, I thought how many ideas have kind of not made it mm -hmm. for one reason or another, like all the different technologies that uh, uh, for you know, internal combustion engines, there's several, but we were just kind of stuck with one for a long time. Uh, in any case, I started looking at the history and, uh, and I came across Young in the history of chemistry with alchemy. And then from there, I basically got lost for a while, wandering around trying to figure out why, um, why he's writing so much about alchemy and as a psychologist. And uh, it was... Um, in there, when I started looking at his other works and found synchronicity, that I saw the cross between the, the two fields, as you were saying, the physics, uh, the study of matter, and the study of mind at the same time. And that got me very interested. I, so it was from science that really drove me to it. I didn't really know much psychology, or uh, it was just, I didn't, hadn't even started doing philosophy yet, which is what I ended up doing. So. One of the themes that came out at, um, when we were talking last night is the degree to which serendipity mm -hmm. in scientific discovery or in laboratory work is sometimes experienced as what we would call a synchronicity, something we didn't really set out. It seems to come to us um, in a non-linear way. And I'd, so I'd like to turn to Edgar about this. Um, Edgar really stepped into this. I mean, he, he's able to figure out how to send a rocket into space and the interval of 12 minutes that it takes to get it into space. And so that's sort of the spirit with which he agreed to participate today to just step, <laughs> into, this, <laughs> step into this room and into this discussion, which is extremely different from what he does in his aerospace lab. So Edgar, could you? Yes, I, I should start by saying, echoing your uh, uh, credentials in science uh, limited to dissecting frogs, I should say my, my uh, experience in psychology is limited to uh, dissecting the mind of my girlfriend in college. <laughs> a, a, an attempt that I miserably failed, of course. But um, So my, as uh, some, uh, someone who works only on the matter, on the mindless matter part of the equation here, since we have eminent uh, psychologists and uh, people who work on the mind, and in the case of Harold, both mind and matter, I work only on matter. And maybe a role I could play is to poke a little bit, uh, more as a, echoing perhaps some of the skepticism that exists in, in the community, in the more prosaic community of applied physics in which I work in. As a matter of fact, some of the uh, implied tenets of synchronicity. Uh, I'm sorry. People are having trouble hearing. Yes. I see. Oh, sorry. It's not just Edgar, it's all of us. So we all have to really talk into our mics. Thank you. Take a break. Really so talk slower and clear, clear and in the mics, everyone. The wrong kind. Yeah. Of the rock. How are you doing? It's not working yet. It's not working yet. No, it's going to be turned down. Oh, it's turned down now, so it doesn't feel that.
ask me. Yeah, maybe the ventilation system yeah. also. Yeah. Ask me for the causation thing next. Okay, Ed Edgar, thank yeah. you. We could use a wireless mic. All right. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> right. Uh, so I was saying, perhaps a role I could play is that of a, uh, to poke a little bit um, and maybe reflect a little bit of the some of the skepticism that I hear in in the more uh, prosaic community of applied physics when somebody mentions synchronicity. Specifically, um, it, at least uh, first, there's no doubt that there's uh, some very interesting. Um, aspects of context in which synchronicity can be talked in in, in in the realm of physics. I'm sure Harold will tell us more about it, especially in, in quantum mechanics itself, in, in the uh, theory and experiments having to do with called quantum entanglement. Uh, but when it comes to prosaic research in everyday physics and applied physics, we actually teach our graduate students to avoid specifically some uh, activities or some some habits that synchronicity seems to, to imply as, as, uh, as central to, to our human existence. Specifically, uh, the idea of uh, uh, eschewing causality. Now, one has to be fair, Jung himself did not say that synchronicity is a replacement for causality and in, in, in coincidences. He, he said it's an, another, another, uh, another uh, option, so to speak. One that, of course, he also implied uh, extends uh, more to a general framework. Let me give you an example for it to become more concrete. For example, let's say you are going to see a friend. Um, you seek to see a certain friend whom you know where, where he lives. So you know he lives on 82nd and Lexington. You know he goes to work in the morning. You walk to the block, you turn the corner, and he's in front of you. Now, there's a causality involved. You're not gonna be terribly surprised because when you turn the corner and see your friend, you know it's a time to work, you actually sought him, his being there is, is not uh, terribly um, surprising. So there's a causal, uh, this coincidence of seeing him, you're not expecting to see him, but the coincidence has a causal you know, uh, uh, relation. Now, imagine going, walking around the city, turning a block, and as you turn the block, you think of a friend you haven't thought of in 20 years, John. And suddenly, John is right in front of your face. Now, um, of course, depending how spiritual you are or how skeptical you are, you might make a big deal or not big big deal of the situation. First, that situation seems to me, and again, we, I'm, uh, please correct me later on if I'm wrong, to satisfy more what uh, Jung had in mind when he talked about synchronicity. Specifically, Jung talked about a uh, situation when he was counseling, uh, when he was uh, uh, t talking to a patient, and when she mentioned in the middle of her talking about her dreams. Uh, a golden scarab being given a, a present 
in her dream of a golden scarab. And at that exact moment, Jung said, there was a little tap on the window behind him, and I'm sure he's you know, very correct, uh, telling the facts as they were. Turn around, there was a bug on the window, opened the window, grabbed the bug middle, middle air, and it wasn't as close as a scarab as you can find in Zurich at that time. So, um, and he made a big deal of it, and that was an example that he cited in, I think, in his book in 1952. So that, to my mind, resembles very much what happens when you turn the corner, and suddenly you see your friend that you thought of. Now, the question is, uh, and we teach our students in the lab, graduate students, to think about it this way. Now, how often do you go around the city thinking of people, which you do quite often, and you turn around and they're not there? And so we teach them what we call normalization. You have to divide the number of certain events by the large number of the other events. So there's a huge number uh, of times you go around the city thinking of people, and there's a huge number of times you turn corners and not there. When you normalize them, you get a small number that we call statistical noise. And we tell them to look at it this way. So, of course, we get a little bit edgy. I'm not talking about myself, but when somebody comes and says, wait a minute, there is a grander more, and that your students should be aware of this. Now, I'm not saying this is what, what uh, Jung Jung say, uh, but this is how sometimes it's perceived in the prosaic community of applied physics, synchronicity might, might be manifested. So I'm here to poke, starting with this argument, and hopefully get some um, conversation. Uh, also, I would like to be educated more on how the concept of synchronicity uh, can interface uh, with physical science and ask how come in 62 years he hasn't yet settled on, um, on something we can teach in textbooks. For example, in quantum mechanics, which is now a, an 80-year-old science, we teach it in, in schools, uh, but seldom we get to talk about these issues uh, that directly re re relate to Young uh, uh, and even what Pauli were talking about is uh, not very well accepted in, by the mainstream physics community. So hopefully I can play that. A um, little bit of skeptical you're, podium. You're podium. playing uh, Polly's role. That's right. Actually, you look a little bit like Polly, too. <laughs> That's very flattering, considering because how much uh, <laughs> I have you, regarded. If you know the history of uh, early quantum mechanics, uh, he was seen as something like a demon. Uh, George Gamow actually has a picture of him with horns on. Because every time he'd go to a lab to see what was going on in this cutting-edge lab, everyone would tremble in fear because things would break down. <laughs> and if you know... It's the Pauli effect. Yes, yeah, the Pauli effect, exactly, has a name. And so the thing is that uh, uh, instruments uh, that deal with uh, observing atomic uh, phenomena or basically phenomena that are at a certain scale or in a certain level of metastability are sensitive. Sensitive enough to have a really grumpy, very um, sort of skeptical, poke a hole kind of guy in the lab, who was also brilliant and a Nobel Prize winner. And uh, so that happened and quite a lot. Uh, but he, in fact, the same person, was the one that stimulated uh, Jung to actually consider the possibilities of uh, psyche and matter somehow not being two things, but being two aspects of one thing, or essentially not treating uh, synchronicity as a mental phenomenon only. If we do just look at it as instance, 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 and then what I think about it, what meaning I put on one instance or another, it gets tricky. You can't do any statistics on it. And so one of the things that uh, is interesting uh, in trying to take a scientific view on synchronicity is you have to revise your idea of what a scientific view is, because on the one hand, you can't do the statistics. On the other hand, you have phenomena, 
And then you have people who habitually are making meaning, seeing patterns. And so for people to uh, basically naturally think about uh, uh, a coincidence as more than a coincidence is something that happens all the time. So it's a, it's a common phenomenon, therefore one that would fall in the domain of science that needs to be studied. But then the normal way of doing it won't do it, so we have to rethink. Um, I'll just add one thing here. Um, something I, I learned from going in the lab, and actually, I probably learned it before that, but I really saw it crystallize in, in laboratory settings, and, uh, and uh, it, it has to do with the poly effect very much. What we saw in quantum theory early on, and the lesson that was learned there, I think has not yet um, had an effect on how science is done. I think it's changed science, and it's created a lot of uh, technologies. But the idea of what uh, uh, quantum theory did to science has not yet made it. And I think that's where synchronicity and, uh, and uh, physics hit. And it's precisely just one point, and that is that uh, there is an effect uh, when you observe something at an atomic scale, you become part of that. So in, in other words, the observation becomes constitutive of the thing you're observing. Um, and I, I'll put it in more general terms. It, this was the beginning of seeing the world as relational. So what a thing is, is not something just in itself closed and totally self-defined. What anything is in this relational worldview is uh, it's made up of its relations to everything else. So the properties of this cup or this table are not properties just purely inherent. They're properties that are dispositional. They will emerge upon interaction. Now in this kind of large scale world, interaction with the world doesn't really change the chair. My sitting in the chair changes it a little bit, but not significantly. It's when you get to the atomic level that simply the act of observation of that actually uh, changes what it is so you can access, while you're looking at certain aspects of it, other aspects of it are uh, invisible, uh, not accessible, in unobservable. Um, this um, is what uh, Bohr and, uh, and uh, Pauli, in fact, uh, agreed uh, quite strongly with them, is called complementarity. And at the root of complementarity is this idea of, uh, uh, which is the, the, the same as the relational worldview, of a coupling. So what, what Bohr said it all complementarity boils down to, and I think this is what synchronicity boils down to as well, is that when you observe something, there's a coupling between the observing device and the thing being observed. And at that point, there's a wholeness. There's one thing. And any dividing line you put between them is going to be arbitrary. It's going to be theory dependent. It's going to be instrument dependent. It's going to be context dependent. And that was not part of science up till this time. It was after that that uh, Bohr uh, kind of formulated it conceptually as complementarity. Heisenberg then came up with the mathematics that showed it precisely to what extent something becomes uh, imprecise, um, that we start to have this idea that the properties are relational in the uh, physical world. And uh, I'll, I'll just say this last thing and, and, and then pull back to the larger world and uh, uh, see where this goes. Um, Essentially, we're dealing with pairs, dyads. Anytime we have two things overlapping, becoming one thing, so there's a causal interaction between the observing device and the thing observed, you have one thing, you have a wholeness there. At that point, you have a co-constitution of one thing by the other thing. Now, 
as I said, this is not observable in science, but any of you who are married or in a relationship right now know that what you are, how you feel, has a lot to do with, is dependent on the other person that's significant in your life. You co-constitute one another. There is no defining you without the other. And uh, family relationships are like that. Ecosystems are like that. So we have a lot of macro-scale things that are... But we didn't really do science that way until quantum theory sort of forced it on us. Um, and I'll, I'll pull back from that for now. Um, one issue that is relevant to synchronicity and that I would imagine would drive a scientist mad, which I don't want to have happen to you, is that in fact you, there is no statistic and it's a highly subjective experience insofar as it's only one person in that instance, sometimes it's villages, who has the image and at that time it's not that, oh, there's been many times I didn't see my friend. It's you, if the person asks why, what in particular why was I thinking of this person? What do they mean to me? What do they represent to me? And why is that being reinforced? And can I register it with surprise, which is one of the survival emotions, then it should take me to some part of myself that is the reason from the inside I was thinking that person about that person that would allow me to make it meaningful that I met that person. So it's highly subjective, it's not reproducible, and you can't set it up in a lab. It includes coming seemingly out of the blue in terms of that kind of coupling. So maybe you can pick up Yeah, there. I actually wanted, wanted to address some of the issues, Edgar, that you brought up, because I think it's, it's really important to, um, to take these objections seriously. Because if you don't do that, then you, then you don't have any chance to talk about this, this scandalous frontier between, between the mental and the material, right? And uh, I think you described very well how the reaction of a typical, not only physicist, a typical scientist to this principle of synchronicity would look like. Because whenever you see a correlation in the sciences and you don't know, you don't have a causal model that describes it, then the reflex is, this must be chance. Not only, not, I would even say, not only if uh, the, the number of incidences uh, um, versus the noise is so low, but even for the, for the conceptual reason that once you don't have any, any causal model, then it must be noise. Right? Even if you have sometimes in high energy physics or, or, or in cosmology, if you have signals which stand out of the noise by, by many standard deviations, some people would say, no, this is not enough because we don't have a model. We don't know how this comes up. Now, um, Jung actually, in his definition of synchronicity, wanted to, uh, he, he implemented something with which he wanted to um, react against the noise argument, the chance argument. And that was the idea that, uh, not as a replacement, as, as, as you said, but as a complement to the causal explanation, there is another possible explanation, mm -hmm. and that he called meaning. meaning that, that's why, why synchronicities are called meaningful coincidences. And not only the meaning just blah, blah, blah for a banal thing, but uh, at least for a long time, Jung was convinced that this meaning must have, he used the notion, numinous dimensions, 
So something like people must be touched existentially. And the scarab example that you, that you um, of course, properly um, told us, uh, of course, had a numinous dimension for the, for the client mm -hmm. and for Jung himself. Yes. Because it's important to, to see that it's not only for the client. It's, it's a kind of, um, it goes on in both because it's a diet, even in that relationship, right? Yes. Um, so the, the client, for the client, a whole new world of realizing emotional components and his and so on came up. And for Jung, I mean, Jung, of course, he knew about this idea of synchronicity. He was deeply touched by the way in which he saw that this just worked in that instant. So this notion of meaning. Now, of course, when you come to a scientist and, and tell him, you know, now we uh, causal explanations don't work for these correlations, um, so I'm not allowed to do chance, then these guys tell me I should do meaning. This is even a, even a greater scandal because meaning is not at all a topic in science. It's not what it's, it's about. Not, I mean, of course, every, every scientist would insist that he does meaningful work and, and so on and so on. But, but, but what I'm saying is the issue of meaning itself is not an explicit object of the study. That's, that's what I'm saying. And now, of course, we are sitting here and um, are, are confronting the question, how can we, in a reasonable way, in a, in a um, way which other people can understand, how can we talk about meaning? And that is, of course, uh, t this, is, this can be a research topic, of course. This is also a topic for individual experiences. And of course, um, meaning is most often something that one experiences the desire to grant if it has an emotional charge to one and if it takes one out of one's usual orientation. For me as an analyst, one of the most stunning aspects of synchronicity is the degree to which it brings an aspect of surprise to me that often has to shake up a certain fixed element of my countertransference onto a patient that I haven't really noticed has somehow slipped into some kind of embedded state and is, is not sufficiently fluid. And then very often something will happen, for instance, I'll open the door, I'll see a patient, and I'll suddenly think of a lobster for absolutely no reason, and the person doesn't look remotely like a lobster. <laughs> and then she'll sit down in the chair and say that um, she was just on Canal Street and the little lobster ran between the cars because Canal Street still has things coming up from the canal. Or I will have a thought and for some, you know, we're all trained to really pay attention to what are the images that come up in us. And very often it turns about, out to be an image that a patient's dream um, will contain. And I don't see that, as, I don't understand it, but I don't see it as just mere neuron phenomena. I don't see it as just Ekman-like expressions where I'm imitating the expression on my patient's face, so I come up with the same images. There's some way that, that element of surprise is asking me to wake up to something with that patient that maybe I've become a little bit dulled out toward. Now, I don't know how that works in terms of serendipity in laboratories. 
not sure I can go right to serendipity, but I wanted to, to, for a moment, return to the misattribution because I think that's an extremely important piece of uh, the discussion. Uh, and from another place, I'll start with something that Winnicott said, that one of the roles of the mother is to protect the infant from too much coincidence. It's a fascinating statement. Tom Ogden picked it up and, and uh, put it into one of his books. And I thought, well, what is that telling us about the, our structures of the understanding of the world? You know, that I, I think there's something about the way we formulated science that we're in the midst of a paradigm change. And the whole question, of course, as you know, is to how do you get from statistical understandings up to the actual observed phenomena? You have a gap there, as, as we all do. And this is where things like emergence, we, we've needed a complex enough science. So the question would be for me then, if we reframe this again in terms of interactive fields, we might have a more interesting discussion about what is coming up between myself and the other. Uh, we've all been talking about co-constructed fields in the analytic world for quite a while. And I go back now to the 19th century when, uh, starting with Hans Christian Orsted, when he was running, uh, showing his students how to do a voltaic pile. You know, and he accidentally, serendipitously, I'll put it in now, serendipitously, um, there was a, a compass on the table and the needle fluctuated. This was the very first experimental observation of a link between electricity and magnetism, that those phenomena that had prior to that seemed completely unrelated now had a link. He didn't know much what to do with it, quite honestly. It, that was in the 1820s. And by the way, a friend of his um, predicted in the 1820s this would be discovered. That's a whole other story. But um, however, um, it gets to, it, we have to go to Michael Faraday in the 1850s before we get the experimental evidence for what fields are like. And you know, when, when Faraday finally articulates his field theory to the British, um, the Royal Society of Science, um, people are stunned because he's overthrowing Newton. That the space is no longer empty, and that things are not. That there's no action at a distance. That, that suddenly the things that seemed magical in science were now being retransformed. Enough that James Clerk Maxwell, when he does his equations, right? He's a, he's a very young man at this point. He writes to Faraday a rather amazing letter saying about the, what this has done to his understanding of the universe. It's opened up an interconnected web that he sees the, the heavens in, in this kind of what I would call an archetypal image that, that grasps him with great power. And of course, that leads to Einstein. But, but we know in the 1870s that William James is reading Maxwell. And he's incorporating that when he gives his Gifford lectures in 1904, uh, 1905, these are the variety of religious experiences. He talks about um, the margins of consciousness acting like a magnetic field. He, he uses that metaphor very, very explicitly in, the, in those lectures. And so what we have then is the kind of introduction of a field theory, a, the a theory of mind being introduced, borrowed from physics, creating a new paradigm. And I think this is the model that Jung himself was starting to develop because by, say, 1934, he writes, James Kirsch wrote him a, a, a supervisory letter asking for his advice about an explicit transference dream that a patient had. And Jung gives him some support and advice on this. And he says, but you know, really, at the deepest level, we don't dream out of ourselves or the other, but it's what lies between. In, in an analytic process, he saw the dreams as being out of a co-created matrix that was coming out of that. And what kind of scientific discussions do we have for that besides going into field theory? Well, maybe I can poke a little bit further. Good. <laughs> uh, and um, 
first, what I tried to describe in my earlier comment is the unease that uh, practicing researchers in at least physical science, I'm sure, is a lot like this in their life sciences, um, have when uh, when uh, you encourage people to draw a, a conclusion as to a correlation that's based on meaning, as opposed to only based on causality. Um, but now let me turn the table. So um, let me turn the argument around and ask. Um, in the realm of Jungian uh, um, analysis, um, there is a tendency to use synchronicity, of course, and to interpret, uh, like, like the example that Beverly just did with a patient. Um, the question I have is, uh, there, should be, there should be, to some extent, a questioning of how much personal bias is at stake. So when you go around the corner and you, you think of a friend and you see him, after 20 years and for the first time, because you thought of him, you have a tendency to amplify uh, because of your own, your own experiences, maybe because of your own belief. Uh, Christian beliefs, um, you know, uh, religious beliefs, maybe Jesus was behind it and so on, things that we do all the time. So uh, there seems to be for it to be a universal um, tenet or universal uh, uh, concept, for synchronicity to be such a concept, there ought to be some more scrupulous um, analysis of when it is based on meaning or when it is caused by amplification of, of personal bias. We call that, in, when we teach our students uh, to do statistical analysis and find a correlation that's not really, uh, uh, that could be based on their bias, it's called uh, error one type. Uh, you know, and, and, and then it's a, this is the, one of the worst things you could, number one, yeah. make sure it's not because you want to believe the theory that you saw this coincidence. So is there such a burden that you guys uphold and and how do you do it? And how do you make sure that you're not saying, uh, that you're saying this is really meaning, this is really what Jung had in mind, and not simply because I wanted to see a, a lobster. Okay. Yes, of okay. course. I mean, I'll, I'll make a brief comment. Yeah, yeah and, and, and just that it was precisely so that we didn't create all magical levels of thinking and the gods and goddesses are coming down and giving us a message when something unexpected happens is to leave our minds sufficiently open that we are the person who's perceiving things, we are making the connections, that just because we don't see the efficient cause and effect aspect of it doesn't mean it's magical. It is something that has happened to us. If it hits us, if it affects us, then we grant it meaning. It's not that there is meaning in my friend coming. It's the surprise aspect, and as I said, of the recognized universal survival emotions. Surprise is one of them. So I sort of have always taken it that it's like a call to just be more alert and alive and connected to certain levels of connection that I've not been so observant of. But it's quite subjective in there. But, but I also think that part of the answer is to not immediately jump to the fact, aha, this is meaningful, because I think you're absolutely right. There are ways in which our bias will unconsciously, I mean, the unconscious bias is obviously the most difficult to eliminate from that. And one of the things that, that one tries to do, I think, with, with this we, we might call Jungian neutrality, um, would be to hold the phenomena and watch what else happens. Watch what else comes from the field itself. That I think 
rather than taking one event and taking that as a kind of definitive uh, answer to this kind of question, is it what, one sees what begins to follow. So for example, I can give you some cases where I have had a synchronicity or something that might be defined in that way with a patient, um, and I've not particularly commented on it. I've just held it and watched because I felt that it was an elliptical communication. For example, with trauma patients, you, we can go to the brain neuroscience for just a second. We know that when the amygdala is really active uh, and there's a lot of fear and anxiety, there are parts of the frontal lobe system that are going to shut down. The, so they're putting things into language and probably even images are not going to happen very readily with that sort of patient. And under those conditions, the normal avenues of communication are blocked off. The question is, are, are there more archaic forms of communication that might be possible, that one has interactions that um, amplify that field that I was talking about, the interactive field, gets charged affectively, even though there isn't a verbal component. And so then the question is to do a trajectory, to follow this over time. So with a patient where I had a really striking, numinous uh, kind of synchronicity where she had a, effectively a precognitive dream that it was only two days later that something happened to me that precipitated the identical event uh, at, an, at the level of image. Not a, she, she had a, I published this. She had a dream that I was lost in the Black Forest. I started to dive, and it was in a, a site called the Black Forest. Uh, coral site. Coral site, yeah. It was yeah. black coral. But it was called the Black Forest. That was the dive site name. And I was just learning to dive. So there was that kind of confluence. I never disclosed this to the patient. But what happened, what, and she had no idea where I was. And there was no dive equipment. I, mean, I, was, I was rather scrupulous about making sure that piece of the communication wasn't involved. She then had a series of dreams, for example, in which she was um, in great difficulty underwater. And I would show up and help her with what's called buddy breathing. That is, you take the regulator and share it. Mm -hmm. uh, and th this had to do with the kind of psychological rescue. Mm -hmm. it, that felt to me like it was an, a reinforcement that the unconscious of the patient was interacting in the field, communicating back that what was synchronistically occurring between us was, in fact, finding verification in her communicative system that was outside conscious ability. And so it's, it's following that over a period of a year or two that seems to me starts to create a more evidential base that this is something other than just my personal bias that, that's doing that, even though I must admit my personal bias got me very interested to start paying attention to these details. If I, if I may draw out of the microscopic examination, if I may draw out of the microscopic examination of synchronicity and uh, talk about it from a... a um, a macro scale. What I mean by that is we've been talking as if, so we have this phenomenon that people seem to observe in psychology. If they're Jungian analysts, they see this and other people say, so let's scrutinize that and see how we can examine this thing and uh, what criteria count. Um, that's kind of a, a normal procedure of kind of uh, going down to smaller and smaller levels to try to find some verification that we can then replicate and so forth. I want to draw back from that for a moment and then take some of the characteristics that we've heard about, about how do you tell if it's a synchronicity, uh, you follow the meaning, um, you, you basically look for some larger context, you're not um, just um, verifying one fact um, about the person, but you're alerted to pay attention now to see what else might be coming along uh, that's meaningful in a broader sense than that one instance. Okay, 
So essentially, it, uh, and, and it comes down, for example, as we were just saying, in a transference, counter-transference kind of situation where you're trying to figure out uh, whose mind we're talking about right now. <laughs> Is this something I'm projecting on the therapist or vice versa? And sorting that out is very important in therapy. It's analogous to sorting out whether you're creating an effect by your instrument or whether the phenomenon is actually responding um, naturally as it does. Okay, um, so what's missing, I think, from science as a whole has been is a degree of self-consciousness. It's conscious, but it's not self-conscious as it should be. Um, and what I mean by that, for one example we had early on was just in this discussion, um, science doesn't talk about meaning. It do scientists do meaningful work, but they don't study meaning. What does that tell you? That's a bizarre statement to make. Back up from that. We have scientists being so objective that they will uh, essentially deem themselves uh, neutral on an ethical field. My work is ethically neutral. This is purely objective. It has no subjective dimension whatsoever. It doesn't matter whether I like it, don't like it, I'm surprised, I'm not surprised, find it meaningful or not meaningful. I just took a measurement, and I took a whole bunch of them, and we know that there's no error one coming in here, but just it's the data. These are all good characteristics of science, but when you pan back to a larger scale, you see that science does have tremendous ethical impact. Scientists are not trained to see it as a matter of their discipline, nor is society prepared to uh, do anything uh, internally uh, with uh, the development of science until recently. Sort of, uh, you let the thing roll along, something horrible happens, there's a government committee that tries to figure out what are the ethical implications, what should we do? But recently now we see that in fact uh, there's a good recognition, at least from the 60s on, that, that uh, science does have tremendous aesthetic and ethical impact sort of inherent in it. And uh, I'll, I'll take you to a little bit of research now uh, from observing scientists at work in the lab. And, and then maybe you've seen some things like this yourselves. Um, so this, this goes to a study in Arizona State University. They're putting uh, uh, non-scientists in with scientists to observe them and to learn what science in practice actually is. They spend uh, 12 weeks with them. And so one of the first pilot studies of that, um, the observer who was a, a, a social scientist was asking uh, the scientist, how do you decide whether to do A or B? And for a good while, the scientist uh, in question, this, this lab, the bench scientist, chemistry, nanotechnology, said, I'm not making decisions, I'm just carrying out the experiment. And it took a while for the scientist to admit, well, I guess I did decide to do this instead of that. So there was a little bit, well, why did you do this instead of that? So there was a gradual penetration of self-consciousness uh, stimulated by the other, but actually all going on internally in the mind of the scientist. Uh, the, that particular story, just to, to wind it up, they had some problems with a particular material they were using, some iron compound. They couldn't get it in time. It was the first time that, they, that this particular researcher had to sort of think about alternatives, and that was, he was prepared to do that rapidly because he had been questioning everything that normally does not get questioned. And so going to an alternative iron compound turned out to be a great idea, and 
suddenly you had a much more efficient, cleaner product coming out of this uh, particular line of uh, nanochemistry. Um, now, not to say that that caused it, uh, but the point is that the normal operating procedure is not to ask questions that are self-reflexive, that would create a self-reflexive process within science, kind of interferes because you have a procedure you carried out. And doing too much of that seems to be being sort of enhancing the subjective dimension, which we spent hundreds of years getting rid of in order to have a good scientific revolution. So how is it that it's coming back? In what form can it come back that it now does not interfere but enhances it? That's related to this question of synchronicity, but from a, I'm way out here and, you know, not near Earth orbit at this point, but we have to. So that's your orbit. I think that's, that's <laughs> this is precisely one of the explosive aspects of, of talking about synchronicity and, and these meaning-related issues within the sciences. Yeah. I think this is, this is the explosive, because the sociology of science tells us this um, scientists themselves is exactly as you say, they, they, are, they avoid this topic. But at some point, this needs to be brought in, I think. Another interesting issue, which you may have read in, in the papers, some of you may read Nature, some of you may, may read the Wall Street Journal, uh, the issue of reproducibility, right? Which is, in, this, in the basic sciences, it's clear if something cannot be reproduced independently in another lab at another time by other people and so on, this is not considered a scientific result. Now we know when we go from physics to chemistry to, to other sciences, to psychology for instance, also to sociology, uh, and in, in between biomedical science is very important, right? Where we have many problems with rep reproducing, for instance, uh, results of preclinical studies, and not simply because the, 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 the research is bad. There are systematic reasons, there are, there are reasons in principle. And this, is, this tells us something too. This tells us that there is a whole spectrum, I would say, when you start from the basic sciences going, let's say, upward or downward, I don't know, <laughs> uh, to the social sciences, then uh, the, the criteria, which are the cornerstones for science, the methodology changes somehow. I mean, for instance, in, in social sciences, often what you, you, you never want to reproduce a single number in, in, a, in an experiment you want to reproduce pattern identification, something like that, which is completely different, very qualitative, and yet it's science, right? So um, now, where's the, where's the border where we go from the, the reproducibility of numbers, for instance, to the reproducibility of patterns? Where is it precisely? We don't know. Yeah. I would like you to see if you could go further into that. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, I think so. That has to do with. So why is the question? If I may repeat it very quickly, the question is why is synchronicity? Um, or why do I think that synchronicity is is a kind of paradigm example for for the mind-body problem, and and how can we approach it? Right. I think. 
two important topics have already been mentioned which, which are related to this question. One of the topics is uh, quantum holism. You, you talked about this a lot. The, the holism, the, ho the completely different holism that we know in quantum mechanics as compared to holistic features like in system theory and so on. I will, I will lose some more words about this in a minute. And the other one is um, that, and I think that's also why Pauli became so interested in it. Meaning is not an issue that you can ascribe to a state. Meaning is an intrinsically relational issue. The meaning is always something, you consider a sign, you know. A sign is not the thing that has the meaning. The sign indicates something, it refers to something out there, and this reference relation, that's why I'm saying it's a relational, the reference relation of the sign, that's, that's where the meaning is. So you cannot locate it here or there. And, and Pauli immediately saw this, that meaning might be an interesting concept to relate the mental as the, the, the state that, for instance, the mental representation, it, if it means something, then it refers to something out there in the material world. So the meaning, you think of an apple or whatever it is. You know, then what you refer to with this representation is what you represent, namely the apple. So, and that relation is, uh, as I said, it's an intrinsically relational notion. It's also, in some sense, it has this appeal to holism because it connects two different things. And um, so that's, I think that is important with respect to the notion of, of meaning that we cannot localize it neither in, this, in the mental state of the subject nor in the, in, the, in the stone or in the apple or in the rock which is outside there. Now, how does that, how does that bend back to this quantum holism? Now, this is Pauli's other idea. Because Pauli was, I mean, if, if anybody at that time, Pauli knew what quantum holism was about. Namely, to put it really radically, I mean, we can discuss this, of course. Systems in, out there in nature, quantum systems, do not present themselves as collections of parts. They present themselves as wholes to begin with. And parts have to be created by interactions with the system, for instance, by measurement, for instance, something like that. So the part, and then what happens is when you sort of destroy the wholeness by making an interaction with the system, you generate the parts, but you not only you generate the parts, you also generate correlations between the parts. And these are the remnants of the lost wholeness, so to speak. Now, um, in this, this idea together with this intrinsically relational aspect of meaning was for Pauli something that he saw and the idea is the following. He said we have a, and this is the aspect of cosmology which Joe brought up uh, um, half an hour ago. Uh, the cosmology that is behind this picture is we have a kind of psychophysically neutral domain of reality, a basic reality, like in Spinoza. A basic reality that, has, that doesn't know the mind-matter distinction at all. And now, the, if this is considered in the, in the analog to, to quantum holism, is this is, if this is the whole, you can separate it, you can make a distinction, for instance, for the purpose of gaining knowledge, to be able to talk about things, for the purpose of analysis, and then you distinguish the psychic and the physical. Once you do that, I mean, staying in the analogy to quantum mechanics, once you do that, you're not only making the distinction between the two things, you also co generate correlations. 
So this analogy was what, what drove Pauli to believe in this picture. Of course, it's, it's a conjecture. I mean, this book, you know, we called it the Pauli-Jung conjecture because a conjecture is a hypothesis with it, which is unproven, but maybe plausible. Okay? That's why we called it that way. So, uh, so we have this idea of a psychophysically neutral background reality, which, which needs to be explored. We don't know much about it. I mean, for Jung, the archetypes and this kind of material would be there somehow. And then we make the, the distinction, we generate, so to speak, the parts, the mental and the material subdomains. And by making the distinction, we also generate correlations. In physics, we, we know how these correlations are, 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 um, can be studied. These are the, the EPR correlations. You don't, you don't want to know this. But uh, the, uh, the, analog, the analog of these correlations now in a much broader picture, of course, because now we are transcending physics, are meaningful coincidences. So that meaning is in some sense already implicit in the undistinguished domain, but of course not explicated. And it, it, it unfolds by making the distinction and then you see it in the correlation as a relational notion. I think that's, the, that's basically the picture. And of course, I, I need to add, this is, a, this is just a sketch. And it's an, and it's an hypothesis. But uh, I think it's, it's really worthwhile to study this in more detail. And, and there are many aspects I can tell you. I, I mentioned how, you know, it's, it's interesting how can research be done on this? And what, are, what would be the practical implications? So this is, this is something we, we may still talk about. But I just wanted, to, I think this picture is, is already the core of the whole thing. May I ask what? if people would prefer to have the air conditioning on again? Yes. All right, so. <laughs> I kept hearing the word physical and psychophysical. And <laughs> it reminded me I'm hot. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, um, Joe. I just wanted to come back to your question about more clinical information because I, I didn't try here to unpack that, but let me say a little bit more. I have to start with the value uh, of the conjecture that, that Harold's just put across. Um, it, it opened my eyes to something I couldn't see before I heard this articulation. That is, the clinical observations we're making are epistemic and this is an ontological question. And th that's part of where we get, conf I find myself confused at times with Jung's hypothesis, because he doesn't make that distinction. And so it, if you don't know that ahead of time, then you think the clinical observations are the explanation, and that falls short. That's part of the problem. So once I can do that, then this brings me where I can make the link then to emergent phenomena. Uh, when I started to move this over in terms of complex systems, um, two things. And one, I, I would actually like to pose a question to. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to get the volume up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we can put the air conditioning on it. 
<laughs> creates one of these effects. We, we bifurcate the system. Um, but, but one of the, the questions I had in, in starting this is, is also to Edgar about the way contemporary science would think about different qualities of time. Because I think when you look into this um, systemic approach, one of the things you start to talk about, Dan Stern, for example, in the Boston Process of Change study group started to talk about kairos, particular moments that had a, a kind of uh, analytic density to them. And that in those dense moments, that's when these kinds of transformative ex phase transition sort of experiment experiences come about. So to go back to the Black Forest case uh, and try to make it a little bit more um, understandable in terms of clinical relevance, in this situation, this was somebody uh, who was highly traumatized, who every time I went on uh, any kind of travel, I needed to hospitalize. And in fact, we came to a complex agreement that I would make a call when I was away. Uh, and it took a lot of supervision before I'd break that boundary to do that. But nevertheless, this is where the Black Forest business came out. Um, and what happened is, in the phone interaction with her, I, it was quite stabilizing. I, uh, I used a lot of reality testing and settled her down. It was only the next day when I had the rather uncanny experience of this um, you know, dive into the Black Forest and what, how I processed that experience that I emerged from that with a kind of new understanding. If you look, for example, at the, the people who study self-organizing systems that create emergent uh, you know, phenomena that are more than the sum of the parts, there are these global things. One of, the, one of the observations is that those things are best uh, looked for at the edge of order and chaos. Now that's a very interesting notion. If you say that emergent forms are most likely to occur, if it's too <clears throat> organized, if it's too dense, too concentrated, then things in, in terms of forming life, everything polymerizes. If it's too dilute and too chaotic, then nothing forms for long enough. And so it's only at that particular emergent edge that you get these kind of phenomena. Well, what happened in that case is that I provided a kind of reality testing for my patient that was rather um, you know, sort of order inducing for her. What I hadn't seen was the chaos induction in myself. And so that I had to adapt my analytic stance with regard to this patient in terms of the, kind, the way the field itself was embracing the two of us. And that allowed me, once I could do that, is to, to truly see the black forest as the image we were both in, rather than her dream image or my dive experience. It was a larger holistic emergent form <coughs> that was operative uh, in the clinical practice. And so then I could begin to keep my counter-transference eye on those kinds of forms as they were emerging, you know, in, in the shorthand of what Beverly was saying about some of these things one might note in one's counter-transference reveries, let's say. But one, one accumulates those in such a way that they begin to provide a reading of the field. And I think they do then give supervision to the clinician back. That would be my argument. You wanted to ask Edgar something? Well, I was, I was asking about the, the whole question of the, the different qualities of time and how that might be thought about in contemporary science. Well, f first, I should say that uh, by nature, um, I admit uh, uh, the way academic science is practiced is inherently conservative. And I think this is what uh, Farzad was criticizing in some ways. Um, uh, so uh, associating uh, anthropological attributes or uh, epithets to, uh, you know, to quality uh, 
to a quantity is, is one of the is a, there's a knee-jerk reaction against them. You know, we, this, however, that doesn't mean that in the practice of science, people can be extremely uh, creative and, and can break boundaries. But at the end of the day, a, a theory or an experiment is judged very conservatively. Now, I taught, what I'm learning, to just summarize to the audience, at least what I'm learning from this, um, first I started with a, a knee-jerk uh, classical science critique of synchronicity. And, um, and you responded, uh, Fraser, for example, gave a very nice, eloquent uh, critique of science practice that lacks an element that uh, he claimed uh, very nicely that could enrich and enhance uh, the practice of science. And uh, Harald also added, um, uh, the, the first he, uh, he, he explained that uh, there's a spectrum of how science is, 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 uh, is practiced and meaning and the use of meaning and correlation can be different. Uh, from going from left to right, you know, it's, not, it's a spectrum, it's not either or, and I really think that's a wonderful thing I, I, I just learned tonight. Um, but I have a question, actually, mostly to Harold. Uh, given the fact that originally um, the, the, the concept of synchronicity and quantum mechanics were, to use a term, uh, 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 entangled at, at birth uh, because Pauli and, and uh, and Jung worked it out together. Actually, Jung did not contribute to quantum mechanics, of course, but uh, Pauli, I think, is, did contribute to Jung's uh, ideas, and he felt that there is an entanglement. After 62 years, um, there is a feeling, at least uh, people who, are not, who do not work on mind-matter problems, that it's still no um, uh, a concrete, um, a concrete, uh, fit, uh, scientific or explanation of physical phenomena that can be unambiguously attributed to synchronicity. Is that the case? Is still the case? If so, why? And if it's not the case, can you give us an example of how you think uh, a direct contribution to understanding physical phenomena from that principle uh, has come through? You want okay. me to respond to this right now? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I know there is. Then we'll start with questions. Yeah, I think we should open it also to the public. I, I, I guess. No, I think there there are several uh, levels of answer to this question. I mean, for Pauli yes, himself, he he, I think a large part of his own interest in this question was due to his own experiences, which you mentioned, the Pauli effect. Because um, and what, what does this tell us? I mean, you become sensitive to these ideas, not just because someone else tells you this might be interesting or uh, study it, go into the lab, and so on. But uh, you, I think the easiest way to really get involved with these issues is own experiences. That's, that's level one, which is maybe almost trivial, but not quite. <laughs> then, of course, there, are, there have been uh, quite a number of research labs which tried, really, in the lab to set up paradigms or scenarios in which human subjects with their mental intentions can change uh, what's going on out there in nature. I mean, for instance, uh, of course, a radical example would be levitation. If, if I want you to lift off, right, and, and want it strong enough, at some point it should work, right? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Unfortunately, in the lab, it didn't work so far. I mean, uh, six, 700 years ago, there are these anecdotal evidences about Joseph of Copertino. I might, might have heard about this. I don't know how, how trustworthy these sources are, but I mean, there are so many. It's, it's almost, it's just, 
Joseph of Cupertino, he was shooting up, you know, not only, not only like this. And he, then he was staying there. <laughs> and at some point he can... Anyway, so this is, this, is, this is about violating a law of nature, which we call the law of gravity, right? So this is a deterministic law. And then people realized in the lab we can't do it. So maybe a good alternative is not really violating a deterministic law, but violating statistical laws. And since you're from Princeton, we know that in Princeton there was such a group, a group of uh, Bob John, and they, what they tried by, is... By the way, my own advisor, even though he, yes. he advised me in physics, but he was parapsychology... Good uh, that you mentioned so, it. So I didn't I, want to mention it. Yeah, he was my own advisor, <laughs> I, and I'm very proud of that. He's no. a wonderful physicist. Yes, that's being, true. Yeah, uh, that's true. Hmm. And so what, what did they do? They, did, they also had these um, human subjects with mental intentions... But it was not, the purpose was not, was not violating uh, deterministic laws of nature, like gravitation. The purpose was, was violating statistical laws, like when you have radioactive decay, you, you have no idea whatsoever what the individual particle does, but you know the statistical distribution of the lifetimes, right? That's what, what physics tells you. Now, of course, when you do the experiment often enough and long enough, then the hope was that you could change the average lifetime of, for instance, radioactively decaying particles. They didn't do it with radioactive decay, but other, yeah. other groups did it with radioactive, radioactive decay. And um, this is interesting now because there were, there were many reports which were, first of all, in the first instantiation when, they, when, they, when the paper was published, they published an effect. Very, sometimes, sometimes Immensely small, but statistically, if you do enough bits, then at some point you get statistical significance. Um, now, that was the first publication. The second publication, people tried to replicate this. Zero effect. Third publication, small effect, and so on and so on. So then some people came up with the idea, we do a meta-analysis of all these analyses, published in a prestigious journal, Foundations of Physics, in 19. 89 or something like that. This meta-analysis showed that there was an effect averaged over all the studies that were published, but then additional points of criticism come up, like publication bias, because all the studies that had no effect have not been published, so they could not go into the meta-analysis, and on and on and on. We don't publish the so, cases see, that have no yeah, effect. Yeah. Yes. For, because if you, if you, have, a, if you have, have a decent journal, and have no effect. <laughs> I mean, what should they do? They don't publish it simply. But nevertheless, in a, in a, in a, in a um, reasonable meta-analysis, all the material should be included, right? So this, I think uh, the labs, this is only one example. There are many more examples like remote viewing and, and, and others. I think so far up to now in the lab, this kind of mental influence on physical, um, say, processes has not been convincingly demonstrated. And with that, so. we're going to open the floor to the I audience. Think. Thank, you. Thank you, Harold. So anyone who would like to ask a question, please do so here at the mic. And if you can uh, tell us who you are and uh, limit it to uh, one question if you can. I'll do my best. Um, this is something down. Can you help with this? There you go. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so uh, I'm trying to um, put forth a proposition I'd like you to respond to, specifically this gentleman and Harold, um, that attempts to correlate two things you, you spoke of. Uh, in terms of um, field theory, 
Uh, it has to do with the weak electromagnetic field generated by neocortical activity. Uh, and the other has to do with holism. Uh, and is it valid to say that within that sketch, that uh, entanglement can be, can be viewed as a hypercorrelative state? Okay. So my question is, um, would, it be, would, it, would it be an explanation for the individual person A thinking of person B going around the corner, there's person B? So if they had known each other before, and the weak link here is that uh, entanglement is uh, subject to subtle entanglement death from noise. But if they knew each other from before, then the interaction of the two electromagnetic neocortical electromagnetic fields could reactivate the neural activation pattern, which is how memories are stored of person B in person A's mind. And so it would not be, in fact, surprising that that person was around the corner when he turned that corner, but actually expected. And the experience of surprise would be because all of that kind of activity uh, as fMRI studies show in well-constructed experiments that um, the uh, scientists uh, conducting the experiment can determine what decision and decision experiment will be made yeah. by the activity in the limbic system prior to conscious choice. Yeah. Yeah. As if conscious choice is an afterstory. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I'm suggesting that this kind of meaning and surprise is an afterstory caused by <laughs> uh, the uh, interaction of these neocortical fields uh, where there is a hypercorrelative state between the two individuals in this particular example. And I'd like the res response from both of you for yeah. that, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, okay, so experiments, am I, uh, yes. Um, again, there are some experiments which have been made along similar lines, not precisely yes. the you same. The flashing light in one Yes, exactly. And then, the exactly, so, and, and what happened is you had, um, uh, the subjects were selected like one subset of the subject was people who were, who were in some sense bonding to each other, exactly, to, to make sure that they know, know enough about themselves and, yeah. and so on and so on. And then there was a control group, right, with randomly selected subjects here and there. And the same happened as before. Sometimes there are results, then, they tr then people try to replicate, nothing, and so on. Again, I mean, I'm not saying that uh, this is completely hopeless. Maybe we have to think about this, this issue of reproducibility in novel ways, mm -hmm. right? This may be possible. Now, the other aspect, I think, is, much, is, is even more interesting that you mentioned, because what you, what you say is um, we are not necessarily talking about a conscious state yeah. which generates these kinds of uh, correlations, but, but unconscious states. And this yeah, is... I would even call them pre-conscious. Pre-conscious, uh, yeah, I mean but not conscious yet, right? So, and, and I think this is, the basic idea in, in this kind of proposal is very much in line with Jungian thought, I think. Because for Jung, um, as I tried to indicate before, you know, the common, let me, let me call it the common cause, the, the, the holistic picture behind the correlations is of course in the unconscious. I mean, from, from Jung's point of view, you come to the psychophysically neutral reality through the unconscious. From Pauli's point of view, you come to the psychophysically neutral reality through quantum holism. But at the end, if the picture has something to it, 
at the end, the distinction between the, the, the mental and the, and the material dissolves. But it, ha it has to do with, with going deeper into yeah, the pre or unconscious whatever. So this is, I think, um, this is very interesting. And, and as J.J. Gibson said, Gibsonian psychology, ask not what is inside the head, but what the head is inside of. Inside, yeah. Psychological <laughs> psychology, right, yeah. I'm hoping everyone can hear the speakers. Are you all still able to hear the speakers? So speak into the into your mics. Yeah. Just very briefly about the electrical, electromagnetic fields and so forth. I, I don't think we've, we've got a full understanding or description of the field yet. I think that's a contribution. Just think about what's come out in the last couple of years on the human microbiome. That you know, you've, you've got 90% of the cells in you, on you, are non-human. That you've got 23,000 genes, human genes. If you take the whole of you, you've got 8 million genes on you. So what are the communicative systems? And there's, there's all kinds of new experiments showing that there's, there's changes in behavior as those microbiomes change. Yeah, and so what I would think these are also other uh, sort of very low level aspects of this field, this psychological field that's generated. That's sure. Yeah. Good question. Uh, our uh, audience, just to keep the questions brief because we have many people waiting and we can always take up things after yeah. the program is over. Uh, I'm uh, Fritz Kenzel, psychoanalyst, psychiatrist. Uh, the issue, I'm very glad the unconscious was finally mentioned. It was not mentioned in the entire, I think, in the, in the entire presentation. Sorry, that, the, the unconscious, oh, that the yeah. unconscious was, uh, that this phenomenon is probably very, very much related to the unconscious. And that the, the issue uh, is, do you think that there's an archaic kind of phenomenological unconscious that is not psychodynamically meaningful that we would not very much use clinically because it doesn't have any psych psychodynamic meaning versus slips of the tongue, specific things that happen, dreams and so on that we do think are psychodynamic meaningful. And if, if we're very much over into that, that more archaic camp of just unconscious things kind of popping up that have no particular psychodynamic meaning, is that are, is that pathological? Are we starting to get in, involved in a hyper-attachment to the patient? Are we so attached, as one uh, psychoanalyst uh, presented it, that her periods um, coincided with the patient's periods? Uh, uh, are we so unconsciously over-attached that we are making these, concocting these kind of of uh, synchronicities that uh, that may, may be more symptomatic of uh, we're, we're just we're too t too attached to the to the patients. Sure, I, I think this is again a what question Could you about. Could speak louder? This is again a question about the attribution of meaning, I think, and the, the role of countertransference that Edgar was raising in there. And yeah, I think that's always a bias. I think though, you're you're. If, I, if you'd let me expand it just slightly, is there a repressed unconscious that's wholly divorced from more primitive layers? I suspect that these bleed into one another, that, that we're looking at spectrum phenomena, and it's very difficult to have a, a complete cutoff. I mean, I know Freud's arguments about, because his interest in telepathy and uh, you know uh, his insect examples where, where um, uh, he felt that there were archaic modes of communication. The problem is, is that uh, 
what, what happens when some of these archaic modes get operating in the therapy that may be because of traumatic situations that are um, extra therapy? They're not about necessarily um, the therapeutic attachment, but actually the preconditions that the person's bringing in. Then I would say that those become therapeutically relevant. It's a, it's a dissociative model rather than or just a repressed model, and that's the kind of patients I was talking about. Several, several thoughts, but I think the issue of unconscious communication has not really been, you know, brought up in, in a way that it seems to me is very important. And I think starting with Ferenzi's paper, 1933, Confusion of Tongues, um, I think the issue of who's whose experience are you experiencing and to what extent we carry the feelings of the other without even knowing it at the moment. So it seems to me that, you know, in, in my own work with patients, there are times, um, you know, in some of my writing, what I've focused on is the countertransference is often our most, you know, important tool for understanding what's going on with the patient and vice versa. So that I think, you know, the whole idea of negative therapeutic reaction, um, you know, I think at this point we understand that often it's more the impact of the analyst that's provoking that rather than that it has to do with the patient. But I'm also thinking about the case, you know, you mentioned, um, and it seems to me my experience, and I think, you know, in that kind of case where you have to hospitalize the patient when you're away, um, there is something about the connection that is absolutely vital and there are certain patients who my experience is if I leave them a number when I'm away and there's an emergency, they will call me and they will survive. If I gave them someone else's name, they would fall apart. Now this is the same stuff that goes on between mothers and children. That if, you know, if the mother is present in one minute you can calm the baby, a babysitter, it might go, the baby might be hysterical for hours. So it seems to me the personal connection is somehow very important and I just feel maybe it should be more right. included in this. Yes. Okay. Yes. I would appreciate if you ask questions rather than make comments. You can always make your comments later, but here I would like you to focus on asking your question. Promise it's a question. Um, I'm Gilles. I'm a neuroscientist by training. Um, and here is two sentences to lead to my question. Um, so if synchronicity is that connection between a mental state, um, a moment, in, and a connection between the two, it seems a little kind of uh, we have information that is connecting or circulating in ways that none of the explanation that we have in science can explain, right? Um, then there was this interesting point about how science manages things. A very important thing in science is to be able to predict, right? Your hypothesis, hypothesis is solid if you can predict the, the, the system. And of course, with synchronicity, you have a problem, which is that it's unpredictable. Um, so I was wondering, would you guys be considering that maybe what we call synchronicity is just the unpredictable part 
of, of phenomenon that might be much more general, but we can't see. And I have two examples that I think uh, I'd like you to tell me if it's relevant or not. Two things. I was always kind of like uh, interested in all those um, experiments that show that cognition can go occur sometimes much faster than any uh, uh, neuronal connection can go. Uh, you just flash people with the minimum information and they catch it way before the whole thing, you know, the whole physiology should be able to see it. That's one thing. The other thing is, and another thing that really fascinates me is the way um, a group of organisms can uh, work together in, in ways that I think are difficult to explain with uh, uh, usual neural pat patterns. Uh, I think of uh, uh, birds and fish, and I'm done. Which is that? So it's just like, do you do you guys see something interesting there or, or not? Well, Harold had it, I think. Yeah, I think the, the fast reactions, like a, like a tennis player, right? Oh, wasn't it? It's just not on. You're okay. Okay. The typical example that is often discussed is a tennis player gets, who receives the ball from the other one within, I, I don't know, as you say, it's a, it's a time scale which is far too fast, far too short, I should say, to, to plan a, a controlled reaction and then put the, the you know the racket in this way and so that that's typically explained by anticipation. They, they by anticipation. So they, the 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 good the, the experienced tennis player anticipates by the movement of his of his opponent what he will do where the ball will go and before even the opponent plays the ball, he already arranges his actions his action planning and so on to hit the ball. Uh, to where it might come. I would like to say so this is a perfect example of using causality yes. to illustrate something that could have been in, interpreted by somebody else as a coincidence of meanings. Because that's a perfectly causal, and, physical. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but this is, I think, the, 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 I think this is the conventional wisdom about the story. Yeah. Now, the, I think the other question is, I mean, f for, for the work that I'm doing is even more interesting. Uh, namely the question whether we might have a a spectrum from yeah. um, very, very unusual and very, very, in quotation marks, yeah. meaningful synchronicities down to something which we observe like a, you know, on an everyday basis. Right. And, and uh, I think the, um, one of the predictions that the Pauli Jung conjecture makes is that this should be the case. Yeah. So you should have ordinary psychophysical correlations which are there all the time. And those experiences that Jung originally highlighted as, as numinous synchronistic experiences, they are, they are in a sense the, 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 the tip of the iceberg. So what are the normal correlations? One, my favorite candidate for those, are correlations between brain states and mind states within a person. These correlations are completely ununderstood, not understood at all. Right. Everybody knows they are there. When we feel that, that we are in a conscious state, of course, everybody assumes, yeah, the brain must do something. But what, in, I mean, neural correlates of consciousness don't tell us anything. It's just the mm -hmm. measurement of a correlation, but it's nothing about the origin of the correlation. Right. You see? So the, these are... Totally, of, or you can you can look at the whole area of psychosomatics, which is which is a similar example. Yeah. And I think these these whole um, 
the framework of thinking that Pauli and Jung posed, right, uh, gives us an idea to understand this whole spectrum. I cannot move my, my right arm. <laughs> this, whole, this whole spectrum yeah. between um, total a total over, overemphasis of meaning, right? Yes, thank you, <laughs> thank you. These would be the coincidence phenomena, and then you go you go to the you go to the baseline, <laughs> you go to the ordinary experiences, and then the prediction would be that on the other side where you don't you don't have coincidences you have dissociations that's right yeah. and this is this is another kind of exceptional experiences which we know that happen a paradigmatic example out of body experiences right and out of body experiences the mindness of my body is no longer uh, does no lo it's somehow interrupted so i see my body as if from an outside perspective and that's precisely the opposite of coincidence so this is this is all part of the picture, and, and so now we are now we are talking about 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 pattern mm -hmm. repro yes. reproducibility, and this kind of stuff has been reproduced mm -hmm. already in yes, the last years. The labs, yeah. So there's a lot. I, I'm only saying that very shortly because we don't have a lot of time, but um, there's a lot of interesting research going on, but not in terms of reproducing individual effects. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm but reproducing now patterns, patterns of behavior, patterns of experiences, something like this. Thank you for that question. It's a great but opportunity. If we could get a power law relationship of those spectrum phenomena, then we could begin to point to an underlying unifying phenomena, even though we can't describe what it is. In other words, if there's a spectrum and we do an intensity, frequency, log, log, plot, mm -hmm. and we get a straight line, then it indicates that we've got a, a, the same fundamental phenomena going on. Mm -hmm. That would be interesting to think of how to do that experiment. My question, my question actually is exactly about patterns. Um, I'm a Jungian analyst, and I, I would like to just say that most of my experiences of synchronicity that I use clinically are not with particularly traumatized patients. I wouldn't want us to think that that's a prerequisite for some kind of synchronistic event, mostly the things happen to my patients outside and they come in and they want to talk about how did that happen, what does that mean, and, and I'd like you to talk, I'd like all, throw this out, to talk about the correlation between pattern, because usually it feels big because it's replicating something, it's amplifying something, meaning, pattern meaning and hope because there's always an a, a upswing, a charge when something synchronistic happens where the patients come in feeling like there's a moment of hope that so, this could mean something, this could mean something. So I'm asking you to, to one, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about the correlation between pattern making, meaning, and hope. Thank you. Uh. I'll, I'll take a shot at that from way out um, again. Um, yeah, the pattern making. Um, so uh, I think the primordial synchronicity, this is what I think you were saying, Harold, is that our minds and bodies go together, that brain state. That, that's like, and that's constant nonstop. Completely Not all the time. So then when you come to pattern making, I think, um, I because we're talking about coincidences, two things happening that ordinarily may mean nothing at all, uh, could just be a correlation, which is useless uh, from a scientific point of view, or it could have meaning, and this depends on the person. So a lot of that is uh, essentially the work of metaphor. A metaphor that works 
is not always universal, but it'll work very tightly for some situation or other. And uh, so what occurs to me regarding the hope thing is that in the um, writings of, um, of uh, mystics, Sufi mystics, this is 11th, 12th century, uh, basically the technique, uh, they talk about the imaginal world between the uh, pure, you know, pure invisible stuff and the pure material stuff, that's where the work goes on. Not in the so-called archetypal realm, maybe, or, or the material realm, but in between. And in that in-between, there's a lot of um, image formation going on. How does that correspond to what we're talking about is that's what metaphor is. You're throwing two things together and looking between them. And, and finally, the way they did this was very much like Jungian um, active imagination. A hypnagogic state they would explicitly put themselves in there, and then they would just go forward, and they would take the prophecies of the, uh, uh, of the Quran, in the case of the Sufis, uh, and this is, would work elsewhere too, of course, is to take those things and take them forward. So uh, as Ibn Arabi said, this is the land of prophecy. Where prophecies are true is only in this realm of the imaginal. That's where it's true, and that's where the hope is. To look for it microscopically in a lab for, you know, in one case, you're looking in the wrong place because you're trying to universalize something that's uh, individual. Yeah, the chaotic boundary. Yes. Hello? Oh, I'm anxious. Uh, <laughs> what I have to do uh, to say has to do with somehow it. The words I have are co-creative, intersubjective fields, more archaic, archaic but not meaning, and very much counter-transference. Um, I am a uh, music psychotherapist. I have a lot of Jungian background training. So um, our whole field in the creative arts is co-creative, everything we do. And it's not like you're over there and I'm, uh, I'm sitting this close to the client. I was talking about this with my, my supervisor who didn't really get it. You know, you're not way over there and protected. You're right here with me. And we do, we write music together. We sing together. And there's something I do called free associative singing, right? Mm -hmm. So we're just free associating, but we're doing it through music. I'm playing, they sing, and I sing. Now, what happened recently I'm just throwing this out to get your opinion because it kind of freaked me out, was um, I'm singing with this woman. She is dissociative, and it's happened now about five times, and we've discussed it, is basically the technique. She'll sing a word, and I'll repeat it. She'll sing, and I'll add to it. She'll sing another word, but I'm right there with her. Somehow in this process, her dissociation, which you all know happens, got to me, and I started to like go under. Mm -hmm. But what happened is when I went under, it's like I went into a trance, and I was having my own dream. And all of a sudden, I sang, my brother's holding a sign that says, I'm a teddy bear. And she said, what? And, and I like snapped out of it. And because this has happened before, she, she said, what happened? I said, I don't know. And I don't know if that was part of related to you or, I, or that was related to me or that was co-created and related to both of us. And I'm wondering what you think. It's happened like four times now, four or five. So. Well, I think that relates to a lot of what Darlene was saying, that, that this kind of 
where the, the, the question of ownership and individual psyche is, a, is itself a model that's too limited to completely describe these kind of phenomena. Uh, you're, you're looking at uh, genuinely co-constructed, and it has something, I think, to do with the porosity of the mind in, in those, those kind of relationships. The deeper you enter into an affective, empathic relationship, there's a kind of porosity, and one has to be careful about that as well. It's both wonderful in terms of the connection, but if you think of complexity, one of the things in terms of creating complexity is you have to break symmetry, you have to lower symmetry. Therefore, when you're in a very tight empathic relationship, it's highly symmetric. And to, to create more psychic structure, there has to be a rupture. In fact, I think your patient did that. She disrupted you, and something more complex could come of that. Hi, my name is Valerie. I'm a writer. Um, every experience of synchronicity that I've had has been helpful. Um, it's felt like a great gift, encouraging and supporting my growth. So assuming that at some point synchronicity will be proved as scientifically happening, um, whatever that means, you know, just taking the next step from, from this, what could it be for? I mean, can, is it possible that there is some substance, some force that could only be serving healing and growth? Because synchronicity never seems to happen as... Uh, yeah, that's an extremely good question, and it's something I should have said right up front that in the way Jung uses the word synchronicity, it is only a synchronicity when the person who is observing it and making the connections internalizes it in such a way that it leads to some expansion and deepening of consciousness. Until it gets to that point, it's a synchronous event, but not synchronistic. And I should have said that, and thank you so much for forcing me to say it right now, reminding me. Thank you. We just have time for two more questions. Hi, my name's Dan. I'm a um, student in cognitive science. Um, so I'm aware of at least one uh, mathematical equation, the HKB equation, um, for people that aren't familiar, Hans Kelso Bunn's equation that attempts to model uh, coordination. And so I was wondering whether the uh, esteemed speakers were aware of this equation, whether they could say something, and whether or not synchronicity was in, uh, is conceptually distinct from um, coordination. Uh, did I say coordination and synchronicity are distinct? Yeah. So. Can you put that question on the blackboard, please? <laughs> no, the, the, what is the equation? I didn't, I didn't understand what the equation was. The HKB equation, which attempts to... Uh, <coughs> uh, you have to... I mean, I'm, I'm aware of the equation, but I'm not an expert, so I'll try to at least explain it. The HKB equation is a mathematical equation that attempts to account for uh, finger coordination between subjects. And so um, the observation is that finger, uh, you know, subjects begin out of sync with one another and yeah, yeah, in so certain phase, in certain yeah, yeah. Uh, certain HKB. conditions, they begin to go into right. sync. Right. That HKB, that stands for three names. That one of them is Hermann Harkin, the founder of the field of synergetics, which is the theory of non-equilibrium um, thermodynamics and many other things. So Harkin, then the, the second one is K, Scott Kelso in, in Florida, and the third one was, was a PhD student, Heinrich Bunz. 
B, U, and Z. And in, indeed, they, they, they were modeling with tools of nonlinear dynamics yeah. these processes in, in which um, motions, I mean, in that case, finger motions, from an asymmetric state spontaneously go into the symmetric state. It happens spontaneously, not only with, with finger movements, but with many other movements too. You cannot, in other words, you cannot maintain the, as, the asymmetric motion for an arbitrary long time. It's not possible. Why? Because the potential that describes the whole situation has a deeper minimum for the symmetric motion. And then at some point, for some people it takes long, for some people not so long, they relax into the deeper minimum. That's the stable thing. That's, the, that's something like the principle of least action, you know, if you want. Yeah, but before we go to the next question, I, I'm still stuck on the last two questions, digesting some of what I heard. And uh, it occurred to me just right now that I just learned something very important for my self-education, which is the, the relationship between meaning, meaning and hope. What I heard is um, once you experience synchronicity and see meaning, it opens up hope. That's what the one lady who asked the question mentioned. And Beverly even went further in saying that actually only when you do that feedback and see if benefits, register it. yeah, register it and, and, and see that you're opening it up, that it's, um, uh, you, you are experiencing what Jung was talking about. That makes me understand synchronicity as very successful, potentially successful therapeutic mechanism. Uh, based on some feedback mechanism, and therefore even less, uh, possibly less um, relevant to explain physical, by physical science. It's like explaining religion, or religion, uh, you know, the, the piety mechanism that makes you feel better. When you go to church and you're very pious, you actually feel better, it's like a rush. And, and that is a mechanism that you cannot, uh, you know, necessarily, uh, this has no relevance to, to science. So I, the more, at the end of the session, I'm realizing more and more that this is a, a wonderful therapeutic mechanism that's been successful, but I'm becoming more and more skeptical as to one need to explain it scientifically at all. I mean, at the end of the day, what makes you feel good doesn't necessarily mean that there's a meaning there. I mean, but okay. Edgar, what you not... If I want to, by the way, if I want somebody to levitate and they really wanted to levitate, the person I can bet as a scientist would not levitate, but I can imagine somebody to feel good having the image of that person levitating. Okay. <laughs> no, but Edgar, what, what, what is quite different from yeah. what you're saying is, first of all, one doesn't make a synchronicity happen. We do not use it as a therapeutic tool because there's absolutely no way that you would know what would really be surprising to a patient except that it would be shocking in some way, which no, is not to, So it's not something one, one does to the other. No, it happens. The only yeah. way that, it, that, why it's a question at all is how do we understand the fact that so many people experience untoward, a-causal, unexpected, multiple coincidences that come together mm -hmm. that somehow matches up something that happens on the outside to the inside. It's not to say we have to explain it for what it is, mm -hmm. but why does it so often happen? What, what, what's the point of so many people having these kinds of experiences? And I guess what the answer uh, that we're hearing is possibly because it does help you feel better. 
No, it sometimes it makes you feel no, terrible. Not, but that's not always the case. You no. dream about somebody you absolutely cannot no. stand, and then you get a. But, but I thought you, I thought you said them. yourself that it's only uh, satisfies the criteria of synchronicity when it does when it leads to some self. Uh, no, self, no, uh, no. It oh, sorry. I'm oh, yes, no. Consciousness, okay. but sometimes yes. what you become conscious of is, is of what you bad. least want to know about yourself. Okay. It doesn't mean it's bad. No, okay, but no. it doesn't. You know. Okay. Think, so, the last question here. Thank you. Um, first, I just want to say it's, it's been an amazing experience to listen to you all uh, with your different perspectives. Um, very exciting. And um, um, I'm Janine Depire, and I'm very interested in the topic of telepathy. So, um, I think my question really is coming from a place of wondering. Why did everyone come today? What is it that's motivating us? Yes, and how, what is the motivation of each of you to pursue your various lines of inquiry and interest? Because mine as a psychoanalyst is, um, I suppose today, looking at it clinically, um, like some of you have mentioned about the value of this potentially clinically. But just as some of you have said, there are times when I think, what the heck, you know, what, what is all this about and why is it even important? What draws me into it is, of course, a personal connection to it, having had experiences of it. But I don't know if all of you have, so I'm just interested to know what brought each of you into your field. And of course, I'd love to know from everyone else why you're here, but just with you eminent speakers, I'd love to know that. Thank you. I, I, we don't have time. No. Let me just prepare the participants. There is going to be one more question. One more question, okay. Um, I think that the I think that the uh, electromagnetic field illusion was um, a great addition to the discussion. Hold on, let me do this. Up. I think that the electromagnetic field illusion you made was a great addition to the discussion, um, as it kind of provides a so-called uh, light at the end of the tunnel. Um, you know, for your search towards synchronicity. And perhaps one day we will find that our brains do in fact impact, you know, the neurocortical fields of others. However, as far as we're concerned, that's not the case right now. Yeah. Um, you know, in your discussion of the Paul Young conjecture, there were a number of references to wholeness, meaningful coincidences, you know, in a scientific world dominated by doubt and scrutiny in its history, things like Heisenberg uncertainty principle, um, Gerdell's incompleteness theorem, uh, you know, is synchronicity just a way to feel better about the unknown, or are you all confident that you'll one day find the equivalent of the Faraday discovery of the magnetic field? I don't know about feeling better. I don't know where yeah, feeling think, better came into this. You know, <laughs> maybe I can I can say something about this issue. Please. Please. You know, understanding, if, if understanding something is feeling better about it, you know? Yeah. That, that's a different level than I would say. The experience itself is not necessarily f feeling better. You know, we have in, in the Freiburg Institute, where I'm also part-time working, we have a counseling unit there. And in the last 15 years, we have seen about 2,000 actually clients which come. And some of them uh, ask for advice because the experience that they have, synchronistic experiences, telepathy, uh, extrasensory perception, how, what you want, you know, they are deeply troubling them. They, are, they experience them as negative and burdening. I mean, not everybody. They, it's, it's almost like half and half. There are some, some who, who really feel, feel that this is enriching their life and, and they interpret it very positive. That's the hope thing, right? But others are, and it's, it's the half, you know, it's the other half. They, they, they uh, cannot get along with these experiences at all. And, and now, 
if if you ask a psychiatrist, yes, bring a, we have a psychiatrist in the lab actually in in this in this group, and the psychiatrist when he hears what these people report, he opens his his manual the DSM, four yeah. or five now, <laughs> and then he looks it up and then he sees oh the, this is a very severe precursor for schizophrenia, for instance. You see what I mean? So I, what I'm saying is these experiences are completely ambivalent. Some, some patients or some clients, we, we don't have patients, clients uh, report them positively, others report them negatively. And this, uh, even the, the, the progressive psychiatrist who may, it's, there's no uh, discrete distinction between healthy and, and uh, diseased, but things about a continuum, he would insist that these phenomena are on a spectrum from healthy to dysfunctional. And the, 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 the convinced psychiatrist, even of the modern continuum type, would completely dismiss the positive side. Yeah. And I think it's the, the interesting thing is that, uh, not, not that everything is positive, the interesting thing is that given the, the, the normal assumption that they are all dysfunctional, we also have positive cases. That's the interesting thing. Join me in thanking the panelists for a wonderful discussion and especially Beverly Zabriskie for organizing a wonderful discussion. Thank you. Wow.